Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, uh, coming to you solo today from lovely Chicago in a, in a rare break of tradition. Uh, we are taping uh, on Saturday this week, uh, which means I get to tell you all about the Dead & Company show last night at Wrigley Field, night one of a two-night run. Lots to talk about, but uh, whenever I see Dead & Company, as good as they may be, it always makes me hungry for the Grateful Dead. So I was happy to come home from the show last night and spend an hour or two spinning some dead tunes and finally came up with a show for this week from June 12th, 1992, Knickerbocker Arena in Albany, New York. And uh, from the Grateful Dead, 31 years ago today, Dan, let's hit the intro. Don't you was the cool fool Never could do no wrong You had everything so uptight How come you never wake up at Just one thing I ask of you Just one Well, uh, that is, uh, of course, Sugary, one of uh, my favorite Grateful Dead tunes, and I know uh, it was always one of the Dead's favorite tunes, and uh, everybody likes a good Sugary, Shake It Sugary, and uh, uh, I'm going to try and track as closely as I can some of the tunes that I heard Dead & Company play last night. Uh, Sugary, they opened the second set with, and was certainly one of the highlights of the evening as uh, uh, John Mayer showed us uh, his, his, his real uh, guitar chops on that one and uh, sang it with a lot of energy. Uh, the band, I thought, came out strong, both sets. And we'll get into the specifics of that in a minute. But uh, uh, this is, of course, Sugary, as I say, from 1992 at the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany, New York. Uh, the summer of 92 uh, was some great shows that you've heard Rob and I probably ad nauseum talk about having seen the dead. Uh, in Las Vegas in May of 92, me with the infamous Alex Bachelor Party and Rob just because he knows a good dead show when he sees one with Steve Miller. And we've talked about that show a lot, but this was right after that one and the boys were still hot and uh, and, and really moving. And, and uh, in this instance, uh, the, uh, the Sugary comes in as the second song of the show. Uh, but last night they opened up the second set with it. And, uh, you know, that's a fun place to see Sugary. I, the Grateful Dead never played it to open up uh, the second set. And they may have played it once or twice to open up the show. Um, I'm just trying to think like a half-step sugary or something like that. Maybe feels like a stranger sugary. Um, but I always kind of like it uh, at the end of a set because they really jam and jam and jam it out on the end. And it's a, uh, it's a great tune to hear in that position. And uh, it was really just a lot of fun last night. As I say, they were really hot on sugary, um, and they they did a good, uh, a really good job. Um, circling back around to the top of the show, uh, and, and you know, I got to give these guys credit. They're 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 starting right on time, right? This ticket said six thirty at six forty. They were out there playing. Uh, they basically played for an hour and fifteen or twenty minutes, right up till eight o'clock. Uh, took a very short set break for 
any musicians these days, let alone the Grateful Dead, who are infamous for their hour plus set breaks. And this one was just about 30, 35 minutes long. Um, and so, you know, then they, they came back out and, and played all the way till 1030, uh, actually with the encore till about 1035 or so. And, um, you know, with a curfew of 11 o'clock, they managed to give us a four hour concert uh, and still come in well ahead of the deadline. I'd like to think that the dead in the good old days would have jammed right up to that deadline. Um, but you know, this is not that band. This is, uh, a dead cover band, one of the better ones out there. And I say that half jokingly, but I think people who listen to J rad and have seen them live, uh, would certainly feel strongly about including them in the discussion. Uh, Phil, when joined by the right people on stage, um, I think has to be part of that discussion as well. Uh, but certainly when you have Bob and Mickey, uh, playing in the same band, unfortunately, again, no Billy, still no word on why, uh, what about the creative differences or why he wasn't there. Um, but you know, you go into it with the right expectations and why not? Otiel Burberry is a, is a legendary jam band bass player. He's, he's played with the very best, um, and you know, never disappoints when he's up there and he's always got his Prince shaped, uh, Prince symbol shaped guitar, uh, bass, which always kind of cracks me up a little bit, but he, he brings it to the table so he can, he can use whatever he wants. And of course, Jeff Comenti and, um, you know, Comenti is just, is really, really great. Um, it's, you know, had the dead found him a little bit sooner, uh, you know, it, it, maybe it's, you know, it's possible to think that he might have uh, been Vince, Brent's replacement instead of Vince, who, by the way, is playing on this show and I think plays very, very well uh, on that sugary. And we'll hear a couple of other spots where Vince really lays it down well, too. Uh, but Jeff Comenti is just an exceptional, exceptional, exceptional keyboardist, and he never disappoints. And now he sings a little bit even and, you know, just very well-rounded, very evenly balanced. And um, I was talking to my good buddy Joel at the show last night, and, and uh, we were agreeing that, he, but he does definitely remind us of Brent and, 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 and does it the same way. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is, uh, dead and company doing their thing. Everybody, uh, you know, rocking and rolling big crowds ahead of time. Uh, local uncle Blotto band played, uh, right outside of the stadium. They've got Wrigley field built up now with all these little family attractions and stuff, which on dead weekends, the deadheads take over. Um, and it's kind of fun. Like I've talked about in the past, you know, to be down at Wrigley field and, uh, the emphasis is not on baseball. It's on the grateful dead and fun. So everybody can come together, whether you're a Cardinals fan or a Cubs fan, whoever they might be. Um, and, uh, you know, just a beautiful evening and, uh, started at 73. By the time the show ended, it was 68. It was clear. It was lovely. We went back to our good friends, John and Marnie's afterwards. They live nearby. And as always, they were gracious and, uh, wonderful um, hosts the hospitality never stopped and uh, we had a great great time I was at the show last night with my very good buddy Chris and his good buddy Ken who's now one of my good buddies and my aforementioned buddy Joel who uh, uh, we often see uh, at shows from time to time um, got to spend some time with my buddy John and my buddy JT so it's always kind of nice these these hometown shows and you get a chance to really uh, you know hang out with your friends at these things and uh, much more relaxed and laid back you you know, by the end of the night, you can drive home and be in your own bed, even if that works out to be about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, but, you know, if you're going to go see Dead & Company, I think it's in, in uh, uh, well, I don't even know what the word is. It's necessary sometimes uh, to be in the right frame of mind. The only problem with the right frame of mind is then sometimes it's a little more difficult to fall, a bet, to fall asleep in bed at the end of the evening. 
Um, but eventually, uh, after some late night show planning and everything for today, uh, I, I managed to, to kick back and knock out. So the, the boys came right out of the box last night playing in the band, uh, which is just a great opener for this band, in my opinion. It's a Bobby song. It's a traditional Bobby song. Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. There's very few ways that Bobby can change it enough to to make it uh not as much fun as it used to be and uh, it's just a great opening jam to to really you know stretch out on for about the first 10 12 minutes of the show and they did not disappoint on that i thought uh you know with the sun shining and you know bobby with his tan looking like a uh, 75 year old rock star up on stage you know with his uh well-trimmed body from his infamous uh, or famous i suppose workouts that he always posts on youtube with other uh great rock and rollers who he corrals in to do that kind of stuff with but he came out really jamming on it and it was a great plane in the band and then a real treat they went straight into deal uh with john singing and of course deal is a traditional set closer um it, it's it's an original jerry garcia tune uh the dead have played it forever and i would say 99.9 percent .9 of the times i heard it it was closing out the first set i suppose it's possible i heard it somewhere else in the set list once or twice, although I don't have any clear recollection of that. Back in the day, uh, when they first started playing it, it wasn't uncommon to see it bouncing around in the set list. Um, but, you know, I would assume that for most of the people who were at that show last night, especially the ones who were old enough, like me, to have see, actually seen The Grateful Dead, um, to us, you know, it, it's just, it's such a strange place uh, to see this song, and yet, you know, so fun and creative and inventive. And uh, John was really sailing along on that one, too. I thought his guitar playing all night was exceptional. Um, Bobby having fun with it. And, uh, you know, Mickey back there drumming. And, you know, it, it's like I say, in the 70s, everybody's in their shorts and this and that. Bobby's wearing, you know, sporting the capris like he always does. And they show Mickey, and he's wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt and gloves. And I, I felt bad. I'm like, I God, I hope you know, definitely, you know, I've got an older dad. I know how it can be. Everybody's, you know, boiling hot and they're freezing cold. So, um, but, you know, give Mickey credit. He was out there all night. He was a heavy, heavy participant in drums where, you know, he remains the master in terms of uh, percussion and all of the studying and experimenting that he's done over the years. And it's wonderful to see Mickey up there, uh, you know, still banging away. Um, you know, he's got the gloves and the, and the rubber sticks, I think, to help avoid the vibrations so much in the arms. Um, and then if he was accompanied on the other drum kit by Jay Lane. And Jay Lane has obviously played with these guys a lot. And he's very, very talented. And it's nice to have Jay Lane there because when they flash him on the screen, he looks like the scruffy kind of long-haired drummer you know, who you envision as a, uh, as a rock and roll band drummer and, and even somebody, you know, for uh, like that in company, um, you know, the way Mickey used to look 30 years ago. Um, and so, you know, Jay Lane is always a welcomed addition and, uh, and, and, and really made a point of uh, letting the fans know that he was there. Um, Deal spilled into Tennessee Jed, very lively, very upbeat, great sing-along tune. And then I thought, you know, one of the uh, uh, real treasures of the night uh, was the song It Hurts Me Too, um, a Jerry song, uh, this time sung by, again, uh, John Mayer, and he did a great time. And actually, I, I should say Pigpen sang it originally. Um, Jerry picked it up for a while, didn't get played very much uh, in the regular rotations. And, um, you know, it, it's a nice, uh, kind of, uh, back catalog tune, you know, for those guys to pull out and play, you know, a lot of good blues. And of course, city of Chicago, a blues town and, uh, very well received by the crowd. Uh, 
into Ramble on Rose. Uh, again, just, you know, another crowd pleaser. Everybody knows it. Everybody can sing along with it. Um, you know, Bobby doing all the appropriate uh, emphasis and, and all that. Although my buddy Joel and I did remark that on the Goodbye Mama and Papa line when Jerry would always give it that really deep growl. Uh, uh, Bobby just doesn't quite get there, but, but you know, that's, that's the Jerry part of it. Right. So, uh, the rest of the tune was fun, played well. And, uh, then they went in, uh, to this next one, which I have a clip from, from, uh, 1992. So let's play it. And then uh, we'll go back and talk about it in the show. I saw. woman another one of those uh you know real crowd pleasers and uh uh in, in this version that we just hear uh jerry on the top of his game uh really sounding great uh good guitar licks uh and, and the brown-eyed woman, I think that, you know, deadheads expect to hear when, when, the, when the boys hop into that tune. Um, contrasting with the brown-eyed woman last night, very good song, very well played, not quite the same, a lot of good energy. And, and, and I'm just going to throw this out there now because it's the proverbial elephant in the room with a lot of our deadhead friends. And that's the real question of, you know, how seriously do we take dead and co in terms of um when they're playing songs or do we do we judge their songs in any kind of context do we say well it's good for dead and co not good for the grateful dead and 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 here's you know the best answer that i can give to anybody um it's one step up from throwing a starving bone a starving dog a rubber bone right um it's it's what you're looking for being back in Wrigley Field last night with 40,000 deadheads was wonderful waiting in line to get in and everybody talking and laughing and reminiscing and, you know, inside all night, everybody hugging, fist bumping. It was a love fest. People were just happy to be among other deadheads with original Grateful Dead band members up on the stage playing their hearts out. And, you know, that to me is is good enough that's why i go i love that atmosphere i love that crowd i love the people i bump into i love the people i can see from afar right i love to find a few twirlers just to watch them like the good old days um you know love to watch the younger people there who are having their first experiences and oh my god they just played this song that i've been waiting to hear forever you know we all know that feeling we've we're all there at one time and it's nice to see People, you know, especially folks who come in who never had a chance to see the Grateful Dead and, and, and therefore find this music, you know, in some ways much more relevant, like all of us saw the Allman Brothers without Dwayne Allman forever or, um, uh, uh, or you know, any of the guys from the band uh, who, who didn't quite make it out of the 1970s. 
And, um, you know, I, I never apologized to anybody for loving, uh, you know, a newer version of the Allman Brothers. You know, it wasn't the same, right? I'm sure people who saw, saw Dwayne, uh, uh, you know, would tell you, oh, well, you know, Derek Trucks is great and Warren Haynes is great, but Dwayne was Dwayne. And I'm sure what well, he was. And I have no doubt about it, but, you know, he wasn't around for me to see. Lowell George died before I could see Little Feet, but every Little Feet show that I saw, I loved and had a great time at. And so it should be for people who never had a chance to see the Grateful Dead uh, versions, you know, with Jerry and and all of that. And this is their opportunity to see Dead shows. This is their dead band. And, you know, the guys up on stage are playing their hearts out and really giving it their all. You, you can see this, that uh, everyone is having a good time and happy to be happy to be up there just you know one note and the entire crowd recognizes it and goes wild and i think it you know it's good feedback like it always is the interaction and the interplay between the band and the crowd and the crowd and the band and um it, it, it's just at the end of the day it's a great experience we were sitting in a baseball stadium on a beautiful summer night uh watching guys from a band that we've were was so influential on all of our lives and uh, here they are coming back to town uh, to give us uh, one more little taste of it uh, as they shuffle off to wherever Den & Company is shuffling off to uh, after this tour is done. Um, but it was just, uh, it, it was great to see them. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive back into that in a minute. But the other thing I want to do is I want to talk now. Last week, our uh, uh, strain of the week was pre-98 Bubba Kush. This week, it's Jack Herrera. And at the show last night, I had the opportunity to sample some uh, very, very good Jack Herrera. Uh, we've talked about Jack on the show before. The Emperor wears no, wears no clothes. His book on uh, you know, everybody's um, uh, illogical uh, attack on the marijuana industry and on marijuana and why, you know, when we stop and like the Emperor is no, not wearing clothes and we all look at it, you know, in the light of day and reality, uh, we see what most of us see, which is that uh, it's a substance. Any substance can be abused, uh, but at least if you abuse this substance, it won't kill you. Um, and, uh, you know, Jack was a real leader in the industry and in the legalization movement and has always worked very, very hard towards that goal. And it was only appropriate that uh, he should get a strain named after him. And Jack Herrera is, is typically a sativa dominant hybrid uh, strain that is wonderful for creativity, for some energy, stimulates appetite very well. Um, and I can say was a wonderful choice uh, for Dead & Co. last night in beautiful Wrigley Field to kind of help monitor things, um, you know, keep us all uh, on the straight and narrow. Um, but uh, it, it's fun to talk about strains because sometimes we just kind of take them for granted. Uh, they all have deep, deep histories, or some of them are just brand new. But like I say, Jack Herrera has been around forever. And we'll talk about Jack on the show again sometime in the future. Uh, but for right now, it's just important to know that if you can get your hands on some Jack Herrera, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, it's, it's really, really fun. Uh, you know, like pre-98 Bubba Kush, it, it, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the old guards, right? It's one of the ones that's been around for a while and is really, really well known. And uh, sometimes like, even like Blue Dream, it's just nice to get back to the basics, uh, uh, you know, or as my good buddy, uh, one-armed Larry would say, back to the roots and uh, you know, taste it again for the first time. So uh, Jack Herrera really made the scene last night. Everybody around me, at least, was very happy with it. And uh, 
now I just have to go see uh, whether there's enough of a supply in the Illinois dispensaries or not to keep it going. Um, because once you start finding a new strain that you like, it's hard to just put it down and roll on to the next one. You like to play that one out for a little while, um, you know, until you're ready to find a new one in a couple of weeks or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, but certainly to go see a, a Dead & Company show, Jack Carrera was the call for the day and, and one that I would, uh, again, strongly recommend uh, for anyone who is interested in that kind of thing. Um, before I forget, I would like to also take this opportunity to give a nice, loud, happy birthday shout out to our producer, Dan Humiston, who probably turns like 29 or 30 today, although he's probably laughing and it's a much larger number, but I don't really know what that number is. So I'm just going to be polite and say 29 or 30. But Dan, of course, is the force that makes this whole show move. So we can't thank him enough. And it's always nice to be able to recognize his birthday and uh, let all of our listeners uh, be able to celebrate uh, with him from wherever they might be at 420 or whatever time is appropriate for you. Um, also want to give a shout out to my wife, Judy, my good friend, Andy. Uh, the two of them are traveling uh, with, uh, with Amy and Lori, and uh, they're all out in George Washington at the Gorge. Uh, last night they saw uh, Brandy Carlisle, uh, the first night of a Brandy Carlisle. And uh, quite honestly, um, I, 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 it's not that I've been a, have or have not been a big Brandy Carlisle fan. Uh, I happen to like Brandy Carlisle, and uh, my wife has certainly gotten me into her a lot more. Uh, but what I like about Brandy Carlisle is when she does a show, she really does a show. Uh, they were all going out primarily spurred on by the fact that uh, tonight, this, excuse me, Saturday night, uh, June 10th, um, Brandy will be playing with legendary Joni Mitchell, who really is just an amazing and amazing, really can't say enough great things about Joni Mitchell as a musician and as a, as a, as a pers personality in the rock and roll industry. Uh, she's been around forever. Uh, she's had her hookups with some of the famous band, uh, some of the famous uh, rock and rollers, or, you know, maybe they've been able to have a hookup with her, depending on how you want to, how you want to look at it. But either way, she's, she's an integral part of this industry and uh, has some of the legendary albums and, and very legendary songs. And Brandy Carlisle really has taken an interest in Joni and uh, has played with her a few times. And there was a big uh, presentation for Joni, I believe this year at the Grammy Awards that Brandy Carlisle helped organize, or at least uh, get her out on stage. So uh, we'll all want to be hearing, and uh, it'll be our show not it'll be our show next week, um, where I'll be able to give everyone a quick update of that. But I can tell you that at the show on Friday night, uh, Brandy was joined on stage by Sarah McLaughlin, Salise, Marcus Mumford, Open, uh, Taylor Goldschmidt was there, Luscious was there, and Annie Lennox. Now. I was a big Eurythmics fan and really, really like Annie Lennox and think she's just uh, uh, another amazing talent, just a tremendous voice and a great uh, rock and roll mojo. And uh, that's just so cool that, you know, Brandy is, is so respected in the industry that she can get all these different talents, uh, you know, to come join her up in George Washington, which is what, I don't know, two, three hours east, I believe, of Seattle. So not necessarily the easiest place to get to. Um, and even for Joni, for that matter. Uh, but you know, Brandy's got the energy and she's got the drive and, uh, it's just great that, uh, that my wife and Andy and Amy and Lori all get to go out there and see this and experience it firsthand. And uh, would be very interested to hear the stories afterwards and, uh, find out just how special it was. So shout out to them as well. Um, 
So going through uh, the show from last night, then we'll get back to that here. And uh, we left off with uh, the Brown Eyed Woman. So then after Brown Eyed Woman, I thought was the most interesting part of the night because they played Crazy Fingers. And, you know, to me, Crazy Fingers is one of those tunes. It's kind of like a almost a back catalog tune for them. And it wasn't that the dead never played it, but they didn't play it with the same frequency that they played other songs. And you could hear it once or twice and never know for sure whether it was back in the repertoire for that tour or not, or just a, an inspiration for Jerry. But I can tell you that whenever they played it, it was always well-received by the crowd. Uh, everybody loved it. Jerry, uh, uh, you know, kind of tells his own little story in it. And, you know, the voice gets uh, cracking and emotional in all the right way. Um, and, and the music itself is just uh, uh, very, very impressive. Uh, Jerry plays it so well. And they played it last night. And Bobby did the singing, which was fine. You know, it's not Jerry, but it was certainly good enough. And um, John was, was, was doing the guitar. And he did a very admirable job. But what amazed me and I know that I'm just old fashioned when I say this, so forgive me, but people complain all the time about folks who go to rock and roll concerts and sit and talk, right? They're all talking, talking, talking. They're not watching the show, but they are bothering everybody else because the other people are there to listen. And they, if they wanted talking, they could have gone to a bar and listened to the show on the radio. Um, but look, that's just the way it is. And, and we're, ne we're never going to be able to change that. But what I found striking was that on a lot of these songs, there was not a lot of talking because everybody was singing and, and joining in and, and cheering and having a great time. And on this one, it was like the entire place tuned out. It was like, uh, whatever that song is, they tuned out. And, and uh, again, you know, uh, my buddy Joel and I were talking about it and we were like, look, if this was the Grateful Dead playing this song and Jerry was up there singing, the entire place would be quiet and everybody would be listening to Jerry because it, it's such a great tune. Um, but, you know, I would say for newer for newer uh, uh, attendees and, and more recent uh, bus boarders and uh, all of that other kind of stuff, if you don't really have that history, um, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. I believe it's on Wake of the Flood, and it's just uh, such a great song. And on the album, it's beautiful, and find examples of it in concert, and, and then you'll listen to it, and then it'll be one of those things where you say, oh, man, I wish I would have really paid attention to it the other night because this is just such a great song. And then just to show that they were situationally aware, uh, they closed out the set with a very strong Dancing in the Streets, uh, with the, the the breakout line dancing in Chicago, which got the crowd uh, certainly pumped up, and uh, they jammed through it not quite at the same energy level. The, the entire show was played maybe a beat or two slower than uh, most of us would normally associate with the Grateful Dead or like to hear it at. But this isn't the Grateful Dead. This is further, <laughs> further. This is Dead and Co. And this is the way you know Bobby and Mickey and the rest of them have chosen to play it. And so it still gets the point across. The crowd was having a great time. Again, a beautiful night. Everybody's in the stadium dancing and dancing in the streets. Closed out the first set. So you know, as I say, it was about an hour, 20, 25 minutes, and uh, it was just tremendous. Uh, they came out 45 minutes later, opened with Sugaree. We talked about that, uh, went into a uh, very strong estimated profit, uh, which was beautiful, but only disappointing because I knew the other night in St. Louis, they had played Eyes of the World. And so we were not going to get an estimated Eyes, which we didn't. Uh, but instead, we got a really, really nice long extended jam uh, that eventually uh, slowly made its way into the other one. Although if memory recalls, I think we only got the first verse of the other one. And then the jam on the back end of that uh, made its way into Terrapin Station. And Terrapin is a song that these guys really like to uh, 
like to do with um, uh, John doing the lady with a fan, the first part, uh, the first part of the song, and then um, the inspiration segment from there on out done by Bobby. Uh, and again, it's, it's all great. Bobby, you know, will always, there's just nothing you can do about it, spits the words out much faster so that, you know, it's not in the, the, the words aren't syllables on the beats like we're used to doing. And when we, when you sing along and you kind of have to make up for that a little bit with him, but that's okay. God bless Bobby. You know, he's just having a good time and, and so are we. So, uh, the Terrapin was great and then eventually made its way into a drums. It was a very, very long extended drums, uh, at one point they stopped and I thought that they were moving on to space, but in fact, it was just the percussionists moving to some of the toys in the back and just creating some very, very interesting sounds. Uh, Mickey got a very strong ovation on his way off the stage at the end of the drums and into the space, uh, which was by contrast, a a very, very short space, not particularly uh, engaging other than everybody kind of tuning and doing a lot of standing around up there for a minute, which is what space is. And then they went into Estella Blue, which was good, if uninspired. Um, Stella is such a beautiful song, and I'm not going to lie. I just saw Warren sing it with Phil at the Salt Shed here a couple of months ago. And, and, and Warren sings it like Jerry. Warren has that emotion. Warren has that growl. Warren has that, you know, just reaching down deep inside with the music and everything. And um, Bobby doesn't. Uh, you know, and, and Bobby played it next to Jerry however many times they played it, many, many times. And this is not a slam on Bobby. I, you know, I'm a big Bob Weir fan. He, I thought, really played great last night. He was very also energized, having a lot of fun. Uh, but Stella Blue is a tricky tune to play. It, it, you know, any of these Jerry ballads can be particularly difficult because so much of it was Jerry's personality and and the, the, the tone of his voice and the flick of his guitar and a note here or there that just made all the difference in the world. Um, but, you know, again, there, uh, there was a strong effort and there wasn't anything wrong with the version of Stella Blue. It, it again, played probably a little bit slower than we would have liked. And then they got funky because they jumped into Sugar Magnolia. And they're playing Sugar Magnolia, and I'm thinking, well, wait a second. This is only the second song out of space. And although there were times later in life when the Grateful Dead would only would, would, would do a set where they'd only have one or two songs coming out of space or maybe two songs into space and three songs on the back end, uh, especially some of those shows when Jerry was not doing as well and they were keeping them shorter. Uh, but I thought, boy, that's going to really be cutting us off. And uh, they did a really, really good, strong uh Sugar Magnolia, and then very interestingly, they they jumped into another tune, and uh, let's first listen to it from 1992. Thank you. 
So Scarlet Begonias, excuse me, Sugar Magnolia into Scarlet Begonias is not unheard of. The very uh, familiar 1979 Farewell to Winterland uh, show that the dead played famously begins at midnight with the countdown and launches into a uh, uh, Scarlet Begonia Sugar Mag. I've seen the dead do that before where they would come out and open up the second set with Sugar Magnolia, Scarlet uh, Fire, and then eventually get back to the Sunshine Daydream at the end of the set. So uh, that was wonderful. And they they they, they played, a, it was a good Scarlet Begonias. It, Scarlet Begonias is, is, there's so much that goes into that song that I think it's really hard to copy it entirely. John does a, an excellent job on the guitar. Uh, he does a, a very passable job on the vocals. And the overall effort is not bad. Um, not like, you know, the Scarlet we were just listening to from 92, but a, uh, a strong Scarlet and fun because now the possibilities begin, except again, uh, sometimes, you know, it sucks to know more than the average fan. I'd been paying attention uh, to the St. Louis show and they had already played Fire on the Mountain in St. Louis, the show before. So, uh, <laughs> you know, just like we didn't get the eyes of the world, we were not getting the uh, Fire on the Mountain and we didn't. Um, instead, uh, they they took Scarlet Begonias out and, and dove into Sunshine Daydream. And Sunshine Daydream uh was wonderful as it always is. Uh, but when I got home last night and I was putting this together, uh, there was just this feeling of this sense of uh, um, something was missing. And of course uh, it was the fire on the mountain because for me, uh, estimated profit is a standalone tune. And even though it's great to have eyes of the world follow behind it, uh, estimated shows up in a lot of different places and, and very frequently not being followed by eyes of the world. Um but it's very, very rare, uh, you know, from 77 or whenever uh, Fire on the Mountain first was played uh, all the way through the present for, you know, to get uh, a Scarlet without a fire. There's even been times when the dead uh, played fire without Scarlet. Uh, most famously, I recall in 1978 at the uh, Egypt shows at the Pyramid, uh, there's a beautiful one there that uh, um, they take right into the, the killer Ico Ico. But, you know, there was no Scarlet. Uh, begonias on the front end of that but i had just you know can you imagine you, you get down to the sugar magnolia and then you get a scarlet fire but i got home last night and i needed my fix of uh fire on the mountain and luckily this show from 92 has an excellent fire on the mountain and dan's going to play it for us right now talk about uh, a nice uh, pail of water man fire on the mountain just 
brings everything back. It's, uh, you know, I listened to it last night a few times, uh, first just to listen to it once or twice, then to kind of go through and figure out what clip to play. And it, it's such a wonderful tune, and it really had me thinking that of all of the, you know, famous combinations, China Rider, Help Slip Frank, that Scarlet Fire is, is just far and away the best, my, my most favorite, I should say. And I think a huge, huge reason of it is because of the fire on the mountain. I love Scarlet Begonias, and it, it's such a happy tune. And whenever you hear the opening chords of it, everybody's just in a great mood. But I love that transition into fire and that, you know, the, the opening womp, womp, womp of Jerry's guitar, uh, you know, that tells, tells everyone we're moving into fire on the mountain at the very beginning, the anticipation of the whole song. And uh, it, it's just wonderful. This is a great version from 92. Um, and again, we had seen a hot scarlet fire uh, the third night of the, those Las Vegas shows. Um, so, you know, no doubt they were on their game with it and uh, really laid down a solid one uh, here in 92, as well as uh, uh, the one they played in St. Louis. And uh, give a quick shout out to my brother, Steve, cool cousin Brent, my good buddy Lappers, uh, who were all at the show and uh, all reported in from St. Louis. Uh, very favorable set list, uh, very well played. And uh, just showing again that uh, St. Louis is a favorite town of these guys. And whenever they go there, they, they try to make it special. Before we dive back into more music, I thought probably not a bad idea to uh, just see what's going on in the world of marijuana right now. Um, there are some good things happening. And uh, one of the best is that Rhode Island, uh, the, the courts in Rhode Island have now expunged 23,000 plus marijuana possession charges um, as part of the legalization laws uh, mandate for relief, right? So if we're going to make this legal so that people can have, possess it, that we need to do something about the people who are in jail or who have convictions on their records that, that's interfering in their life and their ability to get into school or to get jobs or to do what they want to do. And it's nice that when a state says they're going to do it, that they follow up and, and props to Rhode Island really for uh, for not screwing around and, and getting this taken care of. Um, I'm sure these people are all thrilled. Hopefully for some of them, it's a, it's a, it's a positive change that will now allow them uh, to move on and do things that uh, they might've been blocked from doing before uh, just because of the fact that uh, they had a, uh, an arrest and even possibly a conviction for possession. So uh, thank you to Rhode Island uh, for stepping up to the plate on that. Um, in another story that I think is just great, and uh, these stories, I just want to give a shout out to our friends over at Marijuana Moment. Um, I think that they do a really, really great job, as do our friends at MJ Biz, and we'll have a few of their stories in a minute as well. Um, but it turns out now that uh, people in all areas of government are uh, really cashing in on the opportunity to help move forward with the marijuana uh, uh, movement and to show uh, show their chops and maybe um, you know get on the get get some credit for it at the, at the top of everything um, and then there are people who are actually really doing something about it and one of those people not surprisingly is Elizabeth Warren uh, the Democratic senator from Maine uh, as well as uh, um, Senator Ed Markey also, Massachusetts, I'm sorry, I said Maine, I meant Massachusetts. Um, and they are calling now for marijuana reform 
that prioritizes communities most impacted by the drug war and, and I think this is the key point, prevents monopolization by large corporations like Amazon and big tobacco firms. It's been a long kind of a joke, although not really a joke, that it wouldn't take R.J. Reynolds or any of those others very much time to simply convert their cigarette rolling machines into joint rolling machines. Um, and, you know, they're, they're just ready to step in and rock and roll. And when they do, uh, there's really no way, not even for an MSO, I don't think, to be able to, to, to keep up with the, the volume of marijuana that can be produced and packaged and sold uh, by big tobacco. And so not that you know everybody doesn't have a right to run their businesses, um, but we've also talked about how there's this perception in the marijuana industry uh, that we, we don't really wanna be big corporate America, at least not yet. Um, you know, that may be inevitable someday, uh, but right now is the, the industry is, is, is first just, uh, you know, coming out of its shell and, and blooming, if you will pardon the pun, we have to give folks a chance. We have to give communities an opportunity uh, to establish laws the way that they want to do it and not have to be pushed around because big tobacco comes in and says, we're going to do it this way, this way, and this way. And, and Senator Warren said, we know that legalization alone is not enough. We need to ensure that the communities most harmed by the war on drugs are at the front line at the front of the line for reaping the benefits of legalization. And we need to legalize in a way that avoids big tobacco and alcohol corporations or retail giants from dominating the market. Because if left to its own devices, the industry is going to head in that direction. We're all seeing, already seeing some of those companies like Amazon lobbying for cannabis legalization. Uh, she added that she's deeply skeptical that Amazon's lobbying is anything more than a self-interested move to monopolize yet another market, potentially blocking black and Latino entrepreneurs from the emerging emerging industry. So she's really doing two things here, right? She wants to make sure that uh, uh, people in the uh, communities most harmed by the war on drugs uh, all have an opportunity to participate. And uh, historically, over the last few years, as these industries have come online, there's been a lot of lip service paid to that. But in reality, not much done. And so it's nice to see uh, Senator Warren and Senator Markey stepping in and saying, hey, look, um, if this thing is going to, you know, possibly go legal on a federal level, um, or you know, continue to expand on state levels, uh, let's be sure to keep our eye on the ball in terms of, uh, you know, protecting people who are most harmed by the war on drugs, um, and and giving those people an opportunity to prosper instead of just handing that profit right over to big tobacco or alcohol or other big corporations. Now it all sounds nice. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's hard these days to have any confidence uh, that these views will prevail over others in the uh, legislature. But, you know, look, somebody has to be willing to step forward and, and make the proposals. And Senator Warren is doing that. She's well known for often leading the charge on uh, causes that might not be popular. We know she's been made a punch bag more than once uh, by uh, Donald Trump. And, um, yet, you know, she keeps coming forward and uh and really pushing on these things uh, that make a difference. Um, one other article I saw that I think is just uh, fascinating because, of course, now that we have legal marijuana, uh, one of the big questions for law enforcement is, uh, how do we know if somebody is intoxicated? And we've talked about, you know, if you pull blood and you see that there's THC in the bloodstream, but that's just an indicator of presence and not an indicator of impairment. And if you're going to give somebody a DUI, you have to be able to demonstrate that at the time you pulled them over, at the time you stopped them uh, and you wanted to give them a ticket for driving under the influence, that they were in fact 
under the influence and it wasn't just present in their system. So people have been working on a breathalyzer type test for a long time. Uh, Israel has been very uh, uh, much at the forefront of breathalyzers and other type of technologies that might help measure uh, a, a person's impairment. Uh, but at the moment, a new federally funded study illustrates the difficulty of developing a breathalyzer-like device for cannabis, even when using carefully collected samples and laboratory analysis, researchers found THC levels were too inconsistent to tell whether someone had smoked marijuana recently. And of course, that's the whole thing here, right? If you pull me over and you say, I test hot, but I haven't smoked the marijuana you know, five days ago, that's a lot different than if I'm putting out a joint as you're pulling me over. Um, you know, or even if I had just smoked a joint minutes before hopping in the car and it's, you know, it's important for law enforcement to be able to do their job and important for all of us so that law enforcement can do its job and not feel the need to, to arrest people or pull us in because they don't have a way law enforcement to accurately measure presence versus impairment. Um, so hopefully this type of technology would come around. Um, but the, the, the findings from researchers at the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the University of Colorado Boulder said that they do not support the idea that detecting THC in breath as a single measurement could reliably indicate recent cannabis use. More research is needed to show that a cannabis breathalyzer can produce useful results. Um, a breathalyzer test can have a huge impact on a person's life. So people should have confidence that the results are accurate. And that's true. If we have, uh, just like you can go into a bar now and uh, you can blow into a breathalyzer in the bar and it will tell you, um, I don't know if it's as exact or specific, but close enough, uh, whether you're approaching the red line to be considered legally drunk. And it would be nice if you were, we're going to have cannabis consumption lounges or people are going to go to concerts or they're going to go over to their friends' houses to watch football games or whatever they might be doing and they want to be able to, uh, to enjoy marijuana, that if they know they need to get into a car and, uh, you know, driving is an option, but if if, it, if they're not in the right frame of mind, they can always do an Uber or get another ride. Uh, it would be nice if people could measure, uh, you know, where they're at on a basis that will be consistent with what law enforcement will utilize to make determinations of whether somebody's engaged in, in unlawful conduct. So um, there's still a ways to go on this technology, um, which is fine. Uh, I suppose the silver lining is that for people who might be out there driving intoxicated uh, and would otherwise uh, be nailed by a breathalyzer, um, you don't have to worry about that quite yet. But on the other hand, you should be worrying if you're driving so high that you are worrying about whether or not there's a breathalyzer. So, um, you know, like we always say, you got to be careful and, uh, you know, you have to be reasonable. Uh, you know, moderation is, is always the key of the day, you know, unless you're at a, uh, uh, dead and company show and you know that you've got someone, uh, who is of the right frame of mind who can transport you around wherever you might need to go after that concert. So back to the drawing board, maybe on uh, breathalyzer and to see what other types of uh, technology and research um, uh, they can come up with. And then, uh, you know, we'll revisit this and see, uh, see where things are at. Um, Swinging our attention back to 1992 and some wonderful Grateful Dead music from a really, really good show uh, from the Knickerbocker Arena up in Albany, New York, always a, a favorite haunt of the Grateful Dead. And um, they have a, a, a three-disc release from uh, uh, the Knickerbocker in Albany uh, that came out a number of years back and uh, always fun to listen to that as well. Um, just, you know, part of the world where the Grateful Dead like to play and always seem to give their best. Uh, 
So like I said, I'm trying to, you know, continue to find um, strains and strings between the show I saw last night and uh, this 1992 Grateful Dead show. And so just to be creative here for a moment, I figured that this next tune that Dan's going to play for us deserved to be mentioned. time a well-known Rolling Stones tune um, was originally recorded featuring the Andrew Oldham Orchestra. Uh, it was the band's first original song released as an A single um, in the UK. The B side at the time was Play With Fire, another well-known tune, uh, written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and recorded at the RCA Studios in Hollywood, California in January 65. The song was released on the U.S. version of the Stones album Out of Our Heads on July 30th, 1965. The last time was in the band's, uh, was the band's third UK single to reach number one on the UK single chart, spending three weeks at the top in March and early April of 1965. Now, interestingly, although the song is credited to Jagger Richards, as are the overwhelming majority of Rolling Stones tunes, the song's refrain is similar to This May Be the Last Time, a traditional gospel song recorded in 1954 by the Staple Singers. In 2003, Richards acknowledged this, saying, we came up with the last time, which was basically readapting a traditional gospel song that had been sung by the Staple Sisters, uh, the Staple Singers, excuse me, but luckily the song itself goes back into the mists of time, as only Keith Richards can put it. In the, the August 1965 issue of The Beat Instrumental, in reply to a question, who placed a prominent figure on the Stones' releases, Keith Richards said, I played it on Satisfaction, Brian played it on The Last Time, it all depends who thinks it up. Of course, that's Brian Jones, who uh, passed away in a tragic swimming pool accident relatively early on in the Rolling Stones' career, uh, but certainly in their, in their very formative years, uh, was a significant contributor on uh, guitar right along with Keith Richards. And so uh, uh, this the last time was a Brian, as Keith is saying, was a Brian standard where he would take the lead and uh, and really jam out on it. Um, a very popular song in the, in, the, in the Stones' canon, it was regularly performed in concerts, during 65, 66, and 67. It was left off their concert set list after that until 97, 98, when they brought it back out for the Bridges to Babylon tour. It later appeared on some of the band's set lists in 2012 and 2013 on the 50 and Counting tour. Uh, the Grateful Dead played the last time 69 times, so uh, 
took a long time for it to finally be the last time. Um, but they did play it 69 times. The first one on February 25th, 1990 at the Oakland Coliseum. And the last time they played it was in uh, one of the final shows, July 6th, 95 at the Riverport Amphitheater in St. Louis. Uh, the final stop before the final two shows at Soldier Field. So you can really say that they were bringing it along right up to the end. But I thought that it was appropriate for today because Dead & Company did not play it last night. Uh, but Dead & Company is very, very heavily advertising the fact that this is their final tour. On all the merch they sold, on all the T-shirts, on all the posters, on all the signs around the stadium, uh, everywhere. Dead & Company, the final tour, the final tour, the final tour. And, you know, I, I assume it's the final tour for this this group here, um, but I can't believe it. You know, it's the last time for Bob or, well, maybe for Mickey. Who knows what's, what's going to happen to him after this? Um, you know, and, and if nothing, as these, as these various post-Grateful Dead uh, band variations have popped up, uh, and then after a period of time, you know, they shut down. There was uh, the other ones, and there was um, The Dead, and there was... Uh, further and dead and co and it just goes on and on and on and i imagine that we will see some combination of things in the future um but they really let us know that this was the final tour and so yeah the last time right i mean they might as well just come I mean, they probably should have sung this this sung this song uh at, at the show on Friday night. But, uh, you know, for me, it's the last time seeing them. I'm not going to the, the show tonight. Um, you know, like I say, I like uh, Den & Company a lot. I think that uh, they're a lot of fun and I really enjoy the scene and being there and being part of it and, and hearing some of the amazing music that they crank out, even if it's not, uh, you know, as true to the to the dead format as, as you know, so many deadheads uh, would like. But, it, it, when scalping prices to see them are, are you know, $250, $300 and, and up with some people literally asking for $1,500 for a ticket on down on the field, I, 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 it, I, I, I get concerned that people have lost all perspective as to what they're seeing and what they're doing. And I can't compete with that. I, I have no desire to pay $300 as good as last night's show was, uh, Friday night's show, I wouldn't have paid $1,500 for it. I wouldn't have paid six or $700 for it. I might've paid a hundred or $200 for it, but anything over that, I say to myself, why I can just go home, pull out any one of, you know, 200 dead shows that I have uh, in my CD collection, in my tapes, or really with my tapes, it's probably another 500. And I can listen to any show I want from anywhere, anytime. And it doesn't cost me a damn thing. And there's no line for the bathroom. Um, and the only thing that's missing again is the large dead community and just being there uh, with everybody. And that was great last night. And, and I'm a big proponent of, you know, always leaving on a high note, always leaving with a good taste in your mouth. And, you know, I'm going to predict that tonight will be a day's between. There'll probably be a, a Liberty, um, uh, a few other tunes like that. And, and while I don't want to say that I don't like those songs, uh, I don't enjoy them as much, the, the uh, Den and Company version of them, as I did some of the songs that I saw them play the other night. So for me, this is just a good point to jump off of uh, this bus for the moment and, uh, you know, see what comes next for everybody. We're uh, not giving up on this, though. Of course, J-Rad just announced very historically that they're going to be doing a show up in Mundelein, Illinois, which is a northern suburb. Uh, September 9th and there's going to be a festival September 9th and 10th, a Saturday and a Sunday. Uh, J-Red's headlining the Sunday show. Now, just right there, the fact that J-Red is playing a show up in Mundelein, Illinois on a Sunday night in the uh, early fall 
or late summer, uh, it, that would have been good enough news. And I would have been very happy just to hear that and move on. But it's being sponsored by Sacred Rose. And Sacred Rose did not do another festival like they did last year down by the soccer stadium in Chicago, a multi-day event with many, many bands. But this is going to be a two-day event with with a certain number of bands. And, and they have some good ones. But it's also going to be a marijuana uh, uh, exhibit. It's going to be a marijuana weekend. And the key to all of this is that for the very first time in the state of Illinois, and I don't know how many other places, uh, the word is the official policy will be that consumption on site will be permitted during the concert, while walking around the fairgrounds. And uh, to me, that's just such an amazing thing to think you can go to a show like that. You can go to an outdoor event like that. And if you want to smoke, you can smoke. You don't have to look for creative places to go and try and hide. You know, God forbid uh, the, the the local guard sees you or, you know, a parent and a child or whatever it might be. But now they've they've come right out and said that this uh, show up in Mundelein in September is going to be an open use event. And uh, obviously that's one now with both J-Red being the, 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 the musical guests and this wonderful little policy they're, they're putting in place this is a must-see event, and, and we will uh, be planning on checking that out and, and reporting to you about it down the road. And the fact that it's in Mundelein, which my son Johnny lives in Mundelein, so it's about uh, 20 minutes from where I live right now. So it's not like the next neighborhood over, but it's not really that far away. And uh, Johnny's apartment, Johnny and Bella's apartment, will just become the uh, the center of the Grateful Dead marijuana universe for a day or two as uh, uh, everybody takes advantage of their perfectly positioned apartment and uh, and location out there. I haven't told them that yet, but I'm just guessing that they'll be okay with everything. <laughs> Sorry, Bella. Um, but that's going to be fun. So there, there is, it, you know, it's not the end of the Grateful Dead. It's not the end of Grateful Dead live music. There's so much of it out there. So many bands. Dead, Dark Star Orchestra is, is always playing up, you know, a storm with what they do. And uh, J-Rad and, and, you know, Phil will still be playing some shows. And I'm sure Bobby and Wolf Brothers will be playing shows. And, you know, whatever other conglomeration or combination of all these guys they can put together. And we will certainly look forward for the next round whenever it is with with uh whatever players make it to the scene and um you know uh, be happy to have an opportunity to check all of that out and uh and to see what's going on so um there's a lot of talk about all of that but it was great fun uh, i'm glad i got to make it if they're coming through your town go check them out say goodbye everything they've done for us it's a good thing to you know give them a final hurrah and uh I would strongly recommend people do it. Um, one final marijuana story I want to throw in before I, I take off for the day and finally go take a nap is that um, uh, MJ Biz uh, had a really good story too. So thanks to them that now finally New York City is cracking down, really the entire state, but heavily in New York City on unlicensed retailers of marijuana. And we've been hearing about the rollout in New York has been so historically bad, even really making Illinois look good, that uh, individuals and uh, entrepreneurial folks have begun to sell uh, marijuana themselves on the streets of New York, whether in a bodega or a little walk-up place or uh, a convenience or tobacco store. And it's been going on for a long, long time. and this is, of course, uh, the one thing that Ross Dothat did get right, which is the states keep legalizing marijuana without having a plan in place. So you have this time lag, and that's what happened in New York. And people were like, well, we're going to fill the gap. 
and they did. So now they're finally coming back and now they're taking the position. They've, they've amended, amended a law to say it's a crime to sell marijuana without a license. And I'm kind of like, well, duh, wasn't that always the presumption? Uh, you know, as we've talked about, it's not that marijuana is technically being made legal. It's that the state is creating exceptions when people can grow and sell and possess and use marijuana. And if you fall into the facts that make up those circumstances, then you're okay to go. But apparently New York now felt the need to remind everybody that it is a crime to sell marijuana without a license. Um, and while they'll shut down some of them, knowing New York City, I suspect that it will be a, a long and uh, expensive road if they're really trying to get uh, everybody else along with them. And uh, we'll see how hard the governor wants to push on that. But uh, if you're going to New York or if you live in New York, just be careful. It's, 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 uh, it's not the same. Um, well, this has been a fun show. You know, I enjoy uh, rolling out of uh, any kind of a Grateful Dead-like performance. It always puts me in a talkative mood with great stories to share. Uh, but this is why I have a producer to remind me that I've already shared certain stories too many times uh, and that I need to cut back on those. So, again, thank you to Dan for that. A final happy birthday shout-out to Dan. Um, great shout-out to the, the boys in Dead & Company, to their roadies, to the whole crew. Even the folks at Wrigley Field put on a great uh, – a great evening last night, uh, a lot of fun uh, to reemerge, uh, re-dive into, not saying that very accurately today, sorry about that, uh, re-immerse myself in the world of the Grateful Dead, even if just for an evening and with some of my best friends and to really get to uh, have the full evening experience with them. And uh, when I was talking about the show before, we mentioned that uh, right out of the Stella Blue coming out of the space, the boys dived in. Uh, to Sugar Magnolia. And I've always said that Sugar Magnolia may, might just be my favorite Grateful Dead song of all. It's upbeat. It's happy. Uh, everybody knows it. Everybody can sing along with it. And I, I, I really like it at the end of shows. And uh, I'll, again, I'll, I'll never forget 82 in the Syracuse Carrier Dome, uh, the best show I ever saw. And at the end of the night, the, we were sitting in the very back in the whole football field. They were playing Sugar Magnolia, and the whole crowd was just going wild and crazy. And it, it's such a happy song. It's, you know, you're like, oh, no, is this the end of the show? But then you immediately forget about feeling sad because you're just digging Sugar Magnolia uh, so much. And they do such great things with it. And they have a lot of fun with it. Um, it's off of American Beauty. Just go back and listen to it on the album and then, you know, find a couple of your favorite versions of it and throw it on. So that's what we're going to go out with today because uh, it is a typical closer song. Uh, and we will spin out with Sugar Magnolia. Everybody have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again as we will continue to highlight great Grateful Dead shows, talk about the marijuana topics of the day, and share our own concert and marijuana experiences. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy your week and enjoy your cannabis responsibility.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.